From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Zander. And today I have one of my colleagues who's joined me today, and he just has an amazing background, a wealth of knowledge. Every time I meet him, we always talk about some random stuff, but actually there is so much deep learning within every conversation that we have. So I really want to welcome Shurikant Ayangar to the show today. Hey Shurikant, how are you doing? I'm good, Paddy. I'm good. I'm a bit scared as well. You're expecting superpowers. So I think the best I can do is one to train both of it, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I even wore my Avengers t-shirt today. So ah, yeah, way to go. Way to go. Yeah. We're both ready. So don't worry. Nothing to be fearful of. We're, we're insane fans. And no, really appreciate you taking the time out today as well to talk to me. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's kick off, Shurikan. So. The listeners don't know much about you, and uh, I would actually love to know more about you as well. So uh, could you share a little bit about your background and uh, where it all started for you? So, Paddy, if I, I grew up, as you can guess from my name and the way I look, uh, I'm of Indian origin. I grew up in India. I was born in a place in the south of India called Bangalore. If you ask someone 35 years ago if they knew Bangalore, most people wouldn't. But today it is the tech capital of India and probably one of the most famous cities on tech across the globe. So it's pretty good. But I was born there, but my schooling, etc., was done in the west of India in uh, Mopai and Pune, both fairly large cities. And that that's me, right? So like all of us just went through school, hating being in the class, loving being outside the class. Muddling along with sport, I played quite a few sport too, varying degrees, but I think as they said, the, the effort was often more than the skill, but it got you through into the school team and you did a bit of that. Uh, so yeah, and, and I come from a family of, let's say, science grads on both sides. My dad's uh, a textile engineer specialized in nylon tie cords. So when he started working in the 60s, automotives, automobiles were all over the place. So tires were being sold literally by the truckload. And, and so he was a specialist in getting the nylon yarn that goes below that. My mom's a master's in chemistry. So I think growing up, it was pretty clear that science or something to do with science is what I'm going to do. I don't think I had much choice. <laughs> Anything else would not have been acceptable. So after school, I uh, went to engineering school. I did four years of electrical engineering, power systems, etc. Again, in a place called Pune. And uh, as part of that, I spent some time on an automotive shop floor. So, so that's how I realized that I like the people part of the business. As much, if not more than the technology, so went on to do an MBA. So that's me in a nutshell, all through in India, across my education. I've got a younger brother, not so young anymore. He's bolder than I am, lives in the US. So I, I never stop pulling his leg and my folks live in India. We live in London. That's why it's me, the Pali, and we've got a daughter who's uh, going to be 14 now in a month. And it's, it's a sea change. Three years ago, I was the greatest thing in her life. Today, I am the Luddite. I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's good to see that fall from grace. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that's me. 
in in terms of career just to round up pari i i started work in india after business school worked in the cpg space with one of india's largest consumer companies spent time across different parts of india and this happens to be a company which has a significant stake from a fortune 100 company in the uk so there was some interaction with the uk and so on. but then the the tech services industry in india just took off suddenly indian technologists were helping develop code for companies across the globe one of those companies some of you may know was infosys i had a fantastic opportunity to start work with infosys in the us helping grow their business be a sales guy pounding payment as they call it in american terms did that for four years after having worked for about four or five years in india and then moved to london and that's that's me so worked in three continents i'm very blessed for that lived in probably nine different cities through my growing up i i speak uh five languages four of which are indian languages but five different languages and yeah so that that's me wow that's that's huge i was going to say my daughter's 12 so i two more years before i become a stranger to her too uh so 14 seems to be the the sweet spot so shukad what's really interesting is from the western perspective we see india as this booming economy tech is right at the forefront of a lot of what india does but i got to experience just how difficult it is for someone in india to make it in terms of their career and i'd love to hear from you your experience of the indian education system i mean how competitive is it and if you could just put it into perspective for someone who doesn't know too much about it be really really interesting to hear from you well i think the pari that's a very good question and i have lived through it i've been very lucky i'd say but let me talk you through the system right uh, just to give you a sense of numbers for some of your viewers india has today a population of about 1.3 billion people which is the second largest uh, country in the world in terms of population after china but the second thing is about 400 million of those 1.3 billion are in the age group of if i remember correctly somewhere between 15 to 35 or 15 to 40 which means that they're at that prime age where they're learning and obviously you know there there are even younger kids who are growing up right now so there's significant population which wants to learn wants to do well wants to progress in life and i think everyone knows that the way to progress is a good education so clearly on one side there is that drive and that drive straddles multiple socio economic strata it doesn't matter if your parents are rich or whether they're poor whether they work in a white collar job whether they work just just on a daily wage salary but what's common across all parents and all families is they want their kids to do better than them and they know that the way to do that is education skilling that's that's very important so that's great but what that means is the competition is intense the competition is very very intense right it's a function of the opportunities that get created often language is a barrier if you don't speak english or you've not had the chance to learn english it's a little more difficult because let's face it english is the language of the business world across the globe um you need to have strong groundings in math and science and that's often something that's taught pretty young so you'd be surprised that i have seen and i've heard stories of so many people kids 5 6 7 years old who live in small villages in india where sometimes electricity is not available 24 hours you've got issues and so what they're doing is they're trying to maximize the amount of time that they can study for the time the light is available now when kids grow up with that those kind of constraints and make the most of it 
by definition, they become very competitive because they know that you can't take anything for granted, right? So that's the competition that goes in. So when you get to a stage where you're giving competitive exams at the state or national level, typically for most seats, so let's take the engineering college that I went to. Again, I was, I was quite lucky. I came from a background where we weren't rich, but my parents were educated. So you you grounded in that from a young age. But for every position that was available in the college, there were probably about 300 people who wanted it, right? So, so you've got to do well in the exam, but you've got to also make sure that you're prepared for it and so on and so forth. And that just only gets better. So what that means is, the focus has to be there. The, the drive has to be there. The, the perseverance has to be there. And then it's a function of luck as well. So, so that's, that, that's important. Yeah. Again, just talking about, because I'm an engineer, I could talk about the tech industry is driven by engineers from India. To give you a sense, every year India produces, I believe, about half a million or three quarter of a million engineers, which is a significant number. That is probably... As much or probably a multiple of the number of students who go to the college to go to a college in the UK every year, right? Totally across across disciplines. So hopefully that gives you a sense of the scale and the competition. Yeah, wow, that's huge. And you mentioned earlier you know five different languages, and I again hadn't appreciated this as much until I got to actually work out in India. Is just the number of languages that are spoken in India itself. I mean, I had a team of about ten people. And I have to say, nearly every one of them spoke a different dialect of some sort or other. And the one thing that was common was English. That was like the only language that was common. So just to give us a sense of even that diversity in India, like what, what's your experience of that? It's it's fascinating, right? Uh, if I take my story again, I, like I said, we come from the South. So my mother tongue is Tamil, a very old language, probably a few thousand years old. So there's a lot of Tamil literature and so on and so forth. But because my dad worked in the west of India, the, the 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 environment I grew up in, the friends I had on the playground, we spoke English and we spoke Hindi, which is the national language. But we also spoke Marathi, which is the language of the state of Maharashtra where I grew up. Now, interestingly, Tamil and Marathi are not just different dialects. They're different languages. They have different scripts. They, they've got no common words, right? I mean, it's to if someone who doesn't know the other, it's uninteresting. Intelligible, right? Completely. But the, the thing is, when you grow up learning these things very young, it's not that you have to study them. Kids are most receptive to new languages when they're probably one or two or three or four years old, and that's when you pick it up. You know, and then, and so it becomes part of your psyche. And then that's not just, I'm not unique. Most kids who've grown up in India in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you'll typically find that they've had a friend from a different part of the country who's got a different mother tongue, they learn a bit of that and, you know, people move around. So that, that multilingual, if I call it that, is, is, is part of the course. Now that helps people in life because what I've found is when you predominantly live your life and speak a certain language, a new language that's learned when you're an adult is a task, a chore. But if you can think multi-track as in seamlessly switch between languages when you're young, it also adds a certain level of flexibility, mental dexterity, which is helpful when, when you do other things, right? And it's not just language. India is a big country. So the distance from the north to the south of India is probably more than the distance from Helsinki in Finland to Lisbon in uh, Portugal, if I just draw a straight line from the north to the south of Europe. Right? So it's, it's a big country. And every few hundred miles, 
you'll have a different language, but you'll also have different food. You'll have probably different uh, natural terrains. So you'll have the Himalayas in the north. You've got the plains in the middle of India. You've got lush tropical forests as you go towards the south. So great diversity in food and language and religion as well. For example, not many, of course, people associate India with Hinduism, but not many people know that India has probably the second largest Muslim population in the world. India is also the cradle of three other religions. Paddy, I know your Sikh by origin. The Sikh religion comes from India. Buddhism comes from India. Jainism comes from India. So clearly very diverse. And growing up in that diversity means one tends to take variety for granted. And talking about diversity, in terms of male and females in tech, what are you seeing there? What's the trends there? And would you like there to be more done to promote it more within the female population? Or are you actually seeing that that's already happening? I think it's a work in progress. Uh, there are some really good things about tech and then there's a gender diversity in tech. And uh, again, there are sociocultural reasons, right? If you go back about 20, 25 years, India was very conservative. Most women, women were educated. And again, the education of girls is different in different parts of India based on the cultural background and so on. Women in the South and the West and to a certain extent, parts of the East tend to be more educated. In the North, they tend to be less so, although that's equalizing now. But the bigger issue was often a lot of women were educated, but they didn't go on to have uh, careers because the expectation was the girl gets educated and then she gets married and she has kids and that's her primary job to support her family and take care of her, which I think is very archaic in this day and age. In fact, some of the, the best engineers I've known are women. They, they, they can, you know, beat any guy hollow. So there's tremendous respect. So, so, so I think when, when a lot of women started graduating in tech, uh, it was seen as a profession which isn't, uh, let's say, to put it simply, a factory environment, right? So you're not really working on a site or whatever. You're working in an air-conditioned office, a nice cubicle or a desk. And so there was more social acceptance for women to work in this field. Also, timings were pretty regulated in the sense that you got to your work at nine, you finished by six, you, are, you, are, you aren't really going far away. It's all in urban centers and so on and so forth. So there was an acceptability, and which is why you find that in the tech services industry in India, at the entry level, diversity, if I just take gender diversity, it will probably, and I'm, I'm not going the entire LGBTQ spectrum, I'm just going to take it simplistically and say male and female, uh, you probably have at least 30 or 40% of the intake being women, which is a good thing, and it just needs to increase. It's a function of the input. As more women study technology, you'll have a greater pipeline of candidates who can get it. I think where the problem lies, though, is further up the seniority chain or the value chain. What tends to happen is as people progress through life stages along with their career, you know, other things take precedence. If a woman bears a child or children, they tend to take time off from work. Sometimes coming back to work is not as easy as one would expect and so on. And so those are the areas the industry, I think, needs to work on that. How do we find a way to have more women work in more senior roles and create an environment or enable an environment where taking care of life, which is the primary reason we all earn money, doesn't come in the way of progressing in one's career. I'm always keen to know how well women are being promoted in certain uh, careers because I have a daughter and I have to say, I've been much more conscious about that since she was born before that. 
I'm an only child, so I never really faced these issues. But I have to say, ever since she's come into my life, I'm, I'm so much more conscious about it. And it's great to hear, I think, from you, the, the fact that 30 to 40% of candidates are from a female background. And I think that that can only be a good thing. That's a fantastic role models of people who've gone on to do really well, right? If you take examples, I think. And if you go back in history, again, India was probably one of the first countries in the world to have a female leader in Indira Gandhi. I, th- I believe, if I remember correctly, Indira Gandhi was the sec- elected head of state who was a woman after Golda Meir in Israel, uh, well before a lot of other countries. At the risk of creating a political controversy, it's worth noting the US still hasn't had a woman president. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, the point is, there are role models like that. But if you come to the business world itself, take people like Indra Nui, who was uh, until recently the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. She was, again, went through a similar system in joined Pepsi, you know, go, went on to become chairman and president. And this is a woman from India who becomes the chairman and president of one of America's most recognized companies. I mean, that's a fantastic story. Right? There are other people in the Valley. You take Revati Adwaiti, who's the CEO of Flextronics, Lena Nair, who just became the CEO of uh, this uh, amazing fashion brand. So there are a lot of women role models out there that one can emulate. If you take the edtech space that you and I work in, the, the world's most valuable edtech is actually an Indian company called Baiju's. And one of the co-founders of Baiju's is a woman called Divya Gokulnath. Again, she's probably mid to late 30s, built a company that's, I believe by some estimates, worth about $25 billion today. So, you know, a serious shareholder value being delivered right there. So fantastic, right? Yeah, wow, that's phenomenal. I had no idea about that last example there, so I'll certainly be Googling her. And just going back to your previous point about languages, just to make it clear for everyone, there is no language called Indian. There's no language called Chinese. (laughs) These are made up. And frankly, there is no food called Indian as well. (laughs) Just to be clear, Paddy, you know this. Punjabi food is very different from... Tamilian food is very different from Bengali food. There is no food called Indian. There is no language called Indian. Yes, India has a national language, if you call it that. It's Hindi because it's spoken in most parts of the country. But many local languages, and these are not dialects, local languages are, they borrow words from each other, but clearly they're, they're different in their own right. Some have a common script, some have a different script, and then so on and so forth. So if I just go back to the language point, If I remember correctly, India has, I think, about 30 or 35 official languages in their own right. And somewhere between, I don't know, three to 5,000 dialects in different shapes and forms. And then remember, this is something that's been built over thousands of years in that sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And with our household, I've always been encouraged to learn Punjabi from an early age and at one point, my parents would say, if you speak to us in English, we won't reply. And so I was encouraged. Uh, to speak in Punjabi and I'm trying, or we're, we're trying to instill a similar display into the kids at the moment. And they say, daddy, but why do we need this language? Like, why am I having to learn this? No one speaks this language at school. No one speaks it at work. And then something remarkable happened a few years ago when we went to Barcelona on a family trip and we were a little bit lost. We didn't really know where to go next and we jumped into a cab. And there was a Punjabi taxi driver. As soon as I spoke a couple of words of Punjabi, he just warmed to us. And it was so lovely the way he just opened up. At one point, he was ready to invite us to his house for dinner and everything. But it was so amazing. And 
he literally took us around the whole city and afterwards wouldn't take any money from us. And we absolutely paid him, but it was a great example that I was able to give my kids to say that was only because of the fact that he heard us speak the language and he instantly had an affinity with us. So I, I personally am a big fan of making sure that we hold on to some element of that culture. I mean, it'd be great to hear your thoughts, especially since you're a father now in, in this country as well, in a Western country. What are some of the thoughts that you have around that? Yeah, so let's, a few thoughts, right? And you're right, this is something that's debated quite a bit around the dinner table at our home as well. But let's go back to evolution. If you go back to evolution, I mean, we, we you know, humans evolved from apes, as we all know, and then we became social creatures. There were tribes and then there were larger units. And now we've got of connections across the globe. But within that expanse, like all other animals, like all other creatures, if I call it that, we want signs of familiarity because in the animal world, familiarity is important. I mean, you think of a dog. When a dog sees a stranger, they sniff, they try and see, is this person a threat or not? And often, as humans, we are looking for context. And often, language is a great context because if you can speak to someone in a language that they can understand, it builds a connection. So it's a natural human instinct to seek out points of connection. And language is often probably the most obvious, right? Of course, one could say that the way one looks is one, but I think language is a far better, let's say, common factor. So I think being able to communicate with people in the language they want is very, or they, they know is important. And that's why coming back to my daughter, you said I'm a dad. But so my daughter obviously speaks English. She studies in the UK. She speaks a bit of Tamil, my mother tongue, the Pali. My partner, mom comes from a different part of India. She comes from Bengal. So she speaks Bengali and she learns that a lot more two different languages. She doesn't use either of those at school. So she probably doesn't know it as well as she, but she can understand enough. And at school, she learns Spanish and she learns Mandarin, right? So the way I see it, between English, Spanish and Mandarin, she probably can at some point communicate with three quarters of the world or maybe just over half the world, which is a good place to start, right? You, you've got that, you can, you can communicate. But the Going back, I, I also feel that it's important in corporate context, right? Now, we may all speak English, but how many times in the corporate world have we heard, and you, you do that in your agile programs as well, that every corporation has its own culture. And along with that culture comes its own lexicon, its own language, right? There are acronyms which are obvious to certain people who've been in the company for many years, but they're not for people who join newly. How do you embrace those people, bring them into the fabric? Because that's how inclusion happens. That's how a new corporate culture is built. So I think learning from how we as humans have evolved and applying that even not just to our life, but our work context is critical because at the end of the day, we're not just our work. Our work is one facet of a very rich, varied, multifaceted life. So we need to learn lessons from life. I think that the point you made there about the work culture as well, one of the other things that I realized quite late in my career was being proud of your culture, being proud of being a little bit different sometimes, because I, I think for many years, I, I molded myself into the corporate world in, in terms of what I thought everybody's expecting me to behave like, be like, talk like. And it's only until years later that I realized actually being a bit different is going to give you some competitive advantage because you almost stand out from the 
hundreds of other people that are working in that organization and, and having some of this cultural identity, I think, you know, I, I personally would, would say to anyone like flaunt it. It's something that you have, that's part of your DNA. It's probably been in your blood for many, many years, hundreds of years, if not thousands. So bring it to the table because everyone's always really interested in knowing things that are different. We're quite curious characters and, and creatures, aren't we? So yeah, absolutely resonate with everything you just said there.